Welcome to Writing the Wrong Way, the podcast for writers who strive to be bold and readers who crave something new. I'm your host, Jonathan Ball. I want to thank you for being here, and I want us to stay in touch. So subscribe to this podcast, then go to writingtherongway.com and enter your best email to receive the Martian Embassy Missive, my bi-weekly newsletter where I let you know what's happening on Mars, where we're always making big plans. Join the Martians so you don't get left out of the invasion at writingtherongway.com. And as a special bonus, I'll send you a free book. Speaking of books, my new book is called The National Gallery, and it contains sonnets about Leatherface from the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, elegies lamenting the death of my iPhone, and other strange missives from yours truly, the poet laureate of hell. Visit thenationalgallery.ca to order your signed copy. That's thenationalgallery.ca. This is part one of a two-part interview with MC Jodry, uh, also the publisher of At Bay Press. So in it, we first, in this you know, part of the interview, we primarily discuss his novel, Phenonymous, um, which uh, we didn't get into, but Matt wanted me to mention that it has been translated recently into Braille. Um, there's a blind uh, character, a character in, in the novel who has been blind since age seven, uh, and we see her uh, kind of involved very significantly in the plot. Um, and so in the kind of course of researching this and because of a kind of temporary vision loss that Matt himself had, um, he decided to do a lot more research into, you know, you know, literary options he might have as a publisher, because he's also, of course, the publisher uh, of the book, you know, as at Bay Press. Uh, and he ended up putting together and putting out, um, in conjunction with, you know, some other organizations, he ended up putting, uh, together a braille version of the book and you can read uh, Matt's article about this uh, at uh, the show notes I'll link to it so if you go to jonathanball.com slash at bay so jonathanball.com slash a-t-b-a-y then you will find the show notes for this episode where you can get a link uh, to at bay press you know to their uh, it's just at baypress.com but you can you know Link there from show notes if you want. Uh, and also, I will link to the article Matt wrote about putting together the Braille version uh, of Phenonymous. So, without further ado, we'll dive into the first uh, of the two-part episodes. Again, this part is primarily discussing uh, Matt as a writer and Phenonymous, although we get a little bit into publishing. Uh, and then uh, next week, we'll have the second part of the interview which is more focused on at Bay Press and publishing, self-publishing, not so much, but publishing as, uh, you know, a kind of literary activity, part of a literary community. And just in general, you know, what is the sort of challenges and opportunities and, you know, exciting aspects of publishing as a kind of, you know, business operation. So without further ado, Matt Jodry from at Bay Press. I'm excited. Yeah, so um, I'm here with... uh, Matt Jodry, or also known as MC Jodry, also known as At Bay Press or Matt Bay Press, uh, as uh, Gregory, who just you know took off, was saying. Yeah, that was um, a good one. So uh, there's a lot of things you know I had to talk to you about, uh, Matt. But like, let's start. I want to talk mostly about right now about Phanonymous. So this is your uh, recent novel. Um, and uh, it's you know coming out with uh, your publishing company, Abbey Press, and it's just I just want to just say before we kind of get into it, like you know, uh, this is a really beautifully designed book. Oh, thanks. You've got you know uh, really interesting. I mean, it's hardcover. 
Um, it's cloth, uh, you know, beautifully bound. It's got a map of Winnipeg in it. I love this map of Winnipeg at the start, yeah. too, because it's very much like... Um, it's, it reminds me of the maps at the start of, like, fantasy novels in some ways, you know, but uh, it is just, you know, a map of Winnipeg, although you've got a few, like... Uh, Fictional places like the ABC uh, Associated with Canadian Banks, yeah, um, and so on. Uh, you've got a really my copy has a, 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 like a limited edition uh, aspect where there's a little hologram um, and all sorts of neat, uh, neat touches. It's got a beautiful what's this called embossing foil stamp uh, foil stamp on yep. in the hardcover. Like it's really gorgeously done. Um, so I'll talk a little bit about. I want to talk more about that kind of thing when we talk about your press, but sure. as a writer, I just want to ask, like, what, you know, do you feel is, the, like, why do you feel this stuff is so important as a writer before you get the into design? It? Yeah, the design. The design, the aesthetics, um, the tactile aspect are, um, I mean, they're, they're an, an innate human experience, I find. And, and maybe that's just a personal thing. I mean, maybe that's, that's me wanting to do what I like. Um, but... I think that's why in Canada, at least uh, in North America, I mean, ebook sales uh, still continue to be a mere fraction of physical book sales. And I think that's a, a testament to um, people wanting to hold a book. Um, I think that they want to, I think that they want that physical uh, object in their hand. So then it's my job to. Um, if I'm if I'm working on it from a design perspective, to, to make sure that I'm putting out a, um, you know, an object that's that's going to be evocative of that uh, of of those important uh, aspects. It's interesting to me too because I just remember um, people always talking about younger generations and eBooks. I remember uh, when eBooks were really kind of you know making their rise. That was. A lot of the culture conversation was, you know, kids will be reading ebooks. But I, what I found is that kids hate ebooks. Mm. Um, like my, I know my daughter and her friends, and like that generation and below, you know, they're really uncomfortable with ebooks. They don't like them. They don't want to, you know, read a. You know, as a group, they don't want to read a book on their phones. They want sure. to have like a physical thing. Yeah. You know, and um, it's interesting. I remember once uh, my daughter kind of picking her up from school and she had this uh, e-reader with her and she was, you know, angrily like throwing this e-reader like on the dash. And I was like, what are you doing this e-reader? She's like, oh, my friend, you know, she's got the next book in the series that I want to read, but she said she lent it to me, but then she only has e-books. So she had like her friend's e-reader. She was just so mad it's that she had same. to read a, a book. Yeah, it's not the same, you know. And, um, you know, it, but it was, it was interesting because I find like, I prefer print books, but I'm more comfortable with ebooks than like you know my you know Your millennial children. daughter yeah or whatever. I don't. I assume I think she's a millennial. I forget the numbers, but it's like <laughs> she's born in 2000, so I think that counts. It does. Yeah, I think I think she's right in there. Yeah. But it, but so as a writer though, like just kind of what kind of so I, I I think to me and you know a lot of the attachment to the print book is um, like those days of you know. Be deciding to become a writer like I was mm. dreamed of writing a print book you know what I mean like right. it never was in my head maybe it's different for people growing up now it was it was a lot of the um, uh, attraction in certain respects was like a fetishization of the object right and like you know you know one's um, kind of identity kind of being connected to these objects in certain ways yeah I would agree with that I would also think too though that I mean 
when you sit down to write a book, um, you you make a you make a personal decision that you're going to give up an aspect of your life, right? You're like, okay, I've got like you said, you have a daughter, um, you probably have a partner, um, and now you've now you've made a decision that you're going to spend a great deal of time away from them to to sit down and work on this alone, right? And, and be alone. Um, and a lot of writers also have to work a regular we'll call it a day job or a night job or whatever, right? And so for them, now they're, they're double dipping and uh, their time is, is, you know, their 24-hour uh, stretches has been chewed up almost completely, right? So I think that that's, that's the first step is that you sit down and you say to yourself, okay, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to spend all this time on this book. So what was the impetus for you that, like, when you started, when did you first kind of decide or, or what kind of, do you remember what compelled you to really get interested in writing? Well, I was a reader. Uh, that's that's for sure the uh, the 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 biggest interest is is that uh, I think it was an organic um, evolution for me. Um, I I I read a lot, and then suddenly I was writing and drawing a lot, and that was at like you know a very young age, um, before I even understood what that was. Like it was just a. Um, it was just an organic thing, an extension of, of the person that I was. So I just sat down and did that sort of thing. And do you remember when you started to really think seriously about publishing? Um, or, like, you know, of course you became a publisher, but even just before that. Right. Um, do you remember, like, uh, when that started to enter in, into your mind as part of the process? Yeah, well, I think it's, like... I think it's. I think it was at, at two two points in my life. I think I was in my early teens, and I decided, uh, you know what, I really want to, really want to make this comic book. And I had this this story that I'd written, and then I had to sit down and illustrate it. And the illustrate the illustri- the illustrating was really the hardest part for me. Was okay. It's going to take more time than it did for me to write it. <clears throat> and then after I was done, I had like I don't know, fifteen pages or something like that. And I th- I thought, oh, this is so great. And um, then I then I photocopied it, you know, like at school or whatever, and uh, and that 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 was sort of my first real experience with like um, disseminating uh, my work in some way, which would have been just to like a couple of friends and you know maybe my folks or something like that, and and then uh, I started going to uh, comic cons and uh, you know other um, book related festivals and conventions and. Um, I would see all this great talent and I would hear all these stories about trying to get published and it not happening. And a lot of people were getting these, these, um, you know, great rejection letters. When I say great rejection letters, it was like rejection letters with, we're just so sorry we can't publish you because our list is made up for the next three years. And that's so discouraging because it was like, your work is great, but we have no room for you. And, you know, it's different than just getting a form letter, right? Like, everybody's mm-hmm. got form letters in their, uh, in their filing cabinet at home that just say, Dear author, thanks for submitting your work. Fortunately, it's not for us. Signed off the editors, right? But <clears throat> these people are getting, like, you know, just legitimate rejections that we just don't have the space for you. And I thought, well, somebody's got to make space for them because I really like their work. And then I think coming back to that, like, creating... Um, which is in the uh, the writer in you is is that well, I I know personally what that's like to to want to create something and to see it live and go out there into the world and grow up and become something right. So 
why not offer the opportunity to these people? And I, and I would say like 85, 90% of what we publish is people that I've met and seen their work physically at, at various different events. And, you know, I'm able to, to really like just sit back and watch and see how they, they do their thing. It's interesting when you talk about these, like, you know, th- th- those very um, positive rejection letters. Because my first book collected for three years, I collected those letters. <laughs> and every single one of them, without uh, exception, was one of those letters. Yeah. I remember distinct one of them. I remember after <laughs> a few years of this, I got one from a press in the States that said, um, we're sorry, but, you know, we are in the uh, business of publishing only books that we feel like no one else would ever publish and you know that's the kind of but it's you know strange and unique and weird work and while we like you know really value this work we think somebody else would publish it and, and that's why you got rejected I remember I got rejected because they thought somebody else might publish it and I remember thinking like I sure you know what else wants to publish this book <laughs> they actually even sent me a list of like other publishers I could send it to yeah. which I'd already sent it to and got rejected from exactly. like I mean eventually that book did get published so they were right in a sense but like yeah what it really took for me weirdly like for that book because it was such a strange book was actually one of the publishing companies that had only done chat books started doing trade books (laughs) like literally like a whole publishing company's um way that they operated had to change yeah <laughs> and i and i had waited it out because i'd been getting rejected from these other people you know well, it was, but it was a very strange but you know but anyway i guess the question just to kind of come back to like one of the things i think that kind of makes or breaks people off it in those like earlier days where you know before they kind of you know start to get published is like how they weather those rejections yeah uh, but also sure. um uh, just how serious they are. Yeah. And so, like, I always am interested, like, what, um, um, like, what keeps somebody going? Like, so, especially when you have a big project. So, like, just to kind of fast forward a little bit. So we're, you know, Fanonymous. You know, it's not your first book uh, no, as a writer. It's not. Yeah. But um, where did this book kind of begin for you? <clears throat> I think it began with those, it began with those first few pages there. The uh, with all the letters and numbers on it. Those mm-hmm. are uh, all of the. Uh, various uh, numbers or you know that have been applied to me throughout my my lifetime whether it be uh, you know a student number an employee number social insurance number oh, really? are always- telephone number every every and, and they're just in repetition so it's it'd be impossible to determine what's what but I mean I just went through all my filing and just said mm. okay and I was like oh my god they're like it's like an endless amount of numbers that have been applied to me you know what I mean over the years and and suddenly my identity just sort of like uh, came into question like who am I what am I hmm. in the eyes of 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 those that I sort of report to whether it be the government or in a, uh, you know, a school or um, a job or, or whatever and I just thought nobody sees me as a, an actual person and then the idea of anonymity actually hmm. instead of it being um you know, it was it was it was for me. It was like sort of like the the last aspect, the last gong of freedom was it, it, it was in that anonymity of like nobody really knowing who you are, mm-hmm. as opposed to like today's day and age where where it was like everything gets shared, um, and that's where the the, the sort of the the, the the fame and anonymity of the title came into play, which mm-hmm. was 
um, the idea of being famous versus anonymous, or the idea of being anonymous and famous, hmm. right? So um, somebody like a bank, like the graffiti artist. Yeah, all right, exactly. So the graffiti artist that that you see their work on the wall, but you have no idea who they are, right? And some of that stuff, like like having grown up in that environment, where uh, having been a, a graffiti artist myself, I just thought. This is great. Like, and the idea too of like the marrying of like art and words in such a way that it was it became guerrilla street art, mm. where like you, I mean, a lot of graffiti art is just somebody choosing a name that allows them to be anonymous, and then they spray that name on the wall in some sort of like art form. But I like the idea of going deeper than that and having like real messages being uh, sent out and talked about and that exacting some sort of like change starting at the street level. So can you talk a little bit about just what the the basic premise or plot of the book? Yeah, so uh, what what you're looking at is you're looking at uh, it, it's, there's a lot of layers. There's a lot of things. Uh, yeah, there's a lot of layers in this so, book. So first off, maybe just to start with like it's set in a kind of Unreal Winnipeg. Yes. So maybe just let's just start with like some of the. There's some really great things about this Winnipeg of yours because uh, <laughs> the book is very interesting in so far as it's like on one hand it's kind of a sci-fi, uh, you know, with sort of thriller aspects. For it also sure. has these like magic realist yep. uh, kind of fantasy moments. So like Winnipeg has been. Um, is a you know strange place with where there's no operate almost no operational vehicles, yeah. Um, because they've all been kind of killed by a hacker code, yeah, or by a hack, yeah. Um, you've got a uh, pomegranate tree growing at the center <laughs> of Porridge in Maine, magically surviving yeah. the winter and so on. Oddly enough, I, re- I received emails from people who had reviewed the book or or read the book and just. Uh, you know, got in touch and said, "Is that like like who'd never been to Winnipeg? Is that actually a thing? Like, is that the pomegranate?" Yeah, and I think that's I think that's the most interesting aspect of Winnipeg is is that all of this really feels like it could happen. It's a strange city. Yeah. It's a strange yeah. city, and I think that people, um, I think that people who are transplants like myself who weren't born here who come to this city and then you know manage to somehow make it their home. Well, that was my next question, which is sort of, before we kind of get more into the book, like one of the things that happens in this book, you've got this Jack character coming to the city who's this graffiti artist um, who's, you know, again, kind of hiding from uh, the world more or less, you know, in Winnipeg. Mm -hmm. Um, You've got, you know, ways that his life is intersecting with this sort of uh, corporate and, uh, you know, espionage or intrigue that's taking place. Um, in this post, this Winnipeg where uh, it's in a Canada where um, there is no hard currency, like hard currency has been eliminated. It's you know, gone. It's all you know, kind of digital currency. Um, you've got, again, this kind of ma- seemingly magical pomegranate tree growing in the center porch. That's Maine. right. It's pomegranate season, you know, yeah. like seeing pomegranate <laughs> seeds everywhere. You've got an, the Ikea in Winnipeg, which in your version has is infested with feral children that That's people right. have just left there. <laughs> but the government has refused, you know, do, doesn't really have a system. So they're just kind of roaming in feral packs around the Ikea. That's right. You've got a zombie. <laughs> There's just this guy who's like a local fixture, but he's like, a, it turns out he's a zombie. 
that's it. You know, he, he doesn't even really fig, pa- figure into the plot, and then no, he's just there. Way. But <laughs> that, that, that's that's it for me. Like that's that's Winnipeg to a T. It would just there would be a zombie here, just like just hanging, out. hanging out. Yeah, and like everybody like, would just ah, be you know. cool with it. Like that's how I see the city, <laughs> and I just see like yeah, like people would be like, oh, you know, that's just. Uh, it's interesting to me because I'm I'm right now I'm writing a novel that is set in kind of as unreal Winnipeg, and so it's it's very. I'm always interested in like people's bizarre crazed visions <laughs> of Winnipeg but, but it also kind of g- comes to the question that they, everyone's always asking Jack in the novel which is like, why Winnipeg why, why did you that's move right. there so, so for you like, where, where, where did you grow up and why did you come to Winnipeg then I can't really say I grew up any one place in particular because uh, we moved around a lot um, before Winnipeg I came from Toronto but um, I'm, a, I'm a Nova Scotia native I was born there um, so that's I was born in Sydney Cape Breton and uh, slowly moved west, uh, and that just had to do with my father and his work. And um, I don't know. I, I think that like, well, there's a there's there's one really great story of like living in Toronto, taking the subway, and and uh, the Toronto the TTC the Toronto Transit System. Um, they would, uh, or I guess Toronto Transit Commission, I should say. Uh, they they would hold an annual book sale every year at my station, which was Davisville Station, which was sort of like their head office. And you'd get up, you'd come off the subway, and there'd be all these tables, and it was all the um, uh, the TTC workers that like you know donated books mm. to help m- make money for charity. <clears throat> and there was this book on literature, and it was all the literary terms. I guess mm. at the time the book was published in the late '60s, but uh, this is great. And I asked the lady how, how much it was, and she said, "Oh, it's just a buck. Every book's a buck." And so I went to my wallet, and I didn't have a dollar. And I'm like, okay, I gotta go to the bank machine. And she's like, it's right there. And I went over to the bank machine. And to take out $20, I had to pay $3 in service fees to get my $20 bill to pay for a $1 book. That was it for me. Like that was <laughs> that was the that was the, the 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 nexus of the crisis. I guess is that like I just saw this and and wanted to to begin to write about that. And mm-hmm. then. Um, yeah, and I and I and I'd work downtown at uh, First Canadian Place, and they have these elevators there that will literally eat you alive. Um, the doors are so um, powerful and so quick to close and so aggressive mm. that I've seen so many people try to get on at the last second and just get like mashed by these doors. And and that that again was just this this unbelievable. Um, aspect of working in the corporate world where they'll just even the elevators will eat you alive you know so there was just a lot of that 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 i guess was pent up built up and then it just yeah i just spewed it out in this poor novel and then um why is it that you came to winnipeg in the first place then like from <laughs> toronto yeah that's the question right that's uh that's why that's winnipeg? The winnipeg they're always asking Every, Jack, everybody asks. Winnipeg asks yeah yeah and and you know what's funny now having been here like uh, i guess it's uh, 10 years now you know i ask people now when i hear that they're <laughs> like they're, like because yeah. i'm curious like what what would ever bring you to this city you know what i mean like like you live here long enough, or you're born here. You just you like. I had to be here. Why are you here? And yeah, I don't. And I like Winnipeg, but it's 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 just it's a confusing yes thing because it's not necessarily like yeah. a industry that brings people here or like it, there's just not a lot of like obvious reasons why somebody would settle in Winnipeg. Right. Even though I think it's a good place to live and everything. Yeah. You know, I, I, like, like what is the reason that you ended up 
moving here. Like I didn't even grow up in Winnipeg. Well, I, I, I moved here either. because of the publishing company. Like sure. um, we had started the press in a small little apartment uh, in Toronto on the 28th floor of this tower. And, um, you know, we'd run out of space and uh, uh, the print, the printer that we were using, um, you know, we wanted to start with a new printer and, and, and Friesen's had at the time had a lot of, uh, really great things that they were doing that not a lot of uh, the other printers were doing. Plus, they had um, you get what you pay for. Mm. So I've had I've had experiences with Friesens where because uh, they're not perfect and they've they've uh, screwed things up, and then they've uh, taken ownership for it and uh, done what they needed to do to fix it. And I've had experiences with other printers where they don't do that. Mm. Right. So uh, that that that's amazing. And then also, two Friesens have been a really good partner. In um, you know helping us ship books, in consolidated shipments, and keeping costs down, and so uh, also our our American distributor at the time was in Chicago, so mm. getting getting books down there, it just made more sense to be Central Canada, and then I'd say the last big thing was is that I really felt that there were there was this. Um, I don't want to say undiscovered because I think everybody in Manitoba knew it. I just, I just really felt there was a lot of talent here, hmm. a lot of great talent to, um, to sink my teeth into with the publishing company. And I can honestly say that uh, I've proved myself right. Um, there is a lot of great talent here, and I've published a lot of great hmm. Manitoban talent. Right, So it, that, that, that makes uh, it worth it just in that alone. And then just coming back to the book here, so you've got this uh, plot that revolves around the uh, c- you know the central banking system, right? The f- the, who's eliminated this? Uh, they've eliminated hard currency, um, more or less, you know, consolidated control of these mm-hmm. um, like digital paper trails. You, you've got an interesting kind of you know I, I mean there's no date uh, in the book but it's certainly a sort of near future yeah, that world was where you know people cell phone access is free everyone's got a f- free cell phone but they have they're forced to watch advertisements that's right every like you know every once in a while they have to watch a 60 minute ad they're you know yeah. there's all sorts of like really neat kind of dystopian elements that are very funny in some respects in other ways you know just sort of colorful and adding to like the weird world and then in other respects like be kind of come almost techno thriller um right you know plot you know aspects so uh, and one of the things that's curious so one i'm just kind of interested in like you, you blending all those different elements yeah um so i just felt like i i, I start with characters and then um the story bleeds out from there um, don't get me wrong. I, I take all these other fragments of observation that uh, that you know I accumulate throughout life, and then throw it in there as well. Um, I've noticed that you know homeless people get less money now uh, because mm-hmm. people just don't have money on them, right? They only carry plastic. So when a when a homeless person wants something to eat, um, and you don't have any money to give them. <clears throat> I don't know. It's it's kind of heartbreaking for me, right? And so there was a time where people, you know, they just had that little coffee cup, and you you know, you threw a little change in it, right? And it, and it didn't matter where it was going. People always said, you know, oh, it's just going to go to booze. Well, whatever. You know what I mean? Like they're 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 out there on minus forty, living on the street. Like 
least you can do is toss them a little change. <clears throat> that's always been my perspective on it. But um, I think that was like an aspect of it. So that's that 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 helped me write um, what would ha- what would happen to the world if we lost hard currency, and if we lost hard currency, um, all of these these small businesses would would crumble, which wouldn't break the heart of the the corporate world at all, right? Mm-hmm. Um, because a lot of them operate on cash, and let's face it, not all of them declare what they make, right? And that's that's how these these businesses survive. Um, and I don't think there's anything wrong with that. And I think the government uh, would see that uh, as well because they know that uh, you know most people don't declare all their income. If you if every Canadian got audited, I guarantee you that the numbers wouldn't work out. Well, you've got an interesting moment in the book where you know people have um, in the kind of backstory what has happened is people have had a chance to just declare all their money at once. <laughs> yeah. Because otherwise it will just cease to exist. That's it. You've got, you've, you've been, you've been painted into a corner mm-hmm. and you have the opportunity now to come <coughs> clean, um, pay your taxes on it or that it money is, yeah. I mean that yeah. money is nothing more than just, but now power. like to access your money, there's like a fee, as you say, like, you know, uh, that bank fee to get your money out of the machine now has become just to any transaction. Yep. There's like a, Corporate tax almost on top of it, in addition to these other, you know, yeah. taxes. Well, that was just it. I mean, banks used to be um, they used to be a place that you would keep your money to keep it safe, right? To keep it from from theft in your house. But that's not the case anymore. In fact, your house is probably just as safe as a bank. But people have been conditioned to believe that they and and not only that. I mean, if you work a day job, nobody's going to pay you in cash or check. They're all going to do direct deposit. Mm-hmm. So everything has pushed to a direction where the banks are allowed to control your very livelihood. And so I thought, what's the final step? Well, there's two. Number one is the end of hard currency. And then number two is the loss of control from the Bank of Canada, mm-hmm. where the Minister of Finance and the Bank of Canada give up control to an, um, you know, an independent third party who now runs the show, and, and I just thought, well, and of course all of these banks, they conglomerate together to make an association led by one person. It, it, there's, there's nothing more fascist or um, dystopian than that. So why was it important for you to get all the kind of, you know, more fantastical or, you know, even humorous sides of the story in. Like right. the pomegranate tree, for example, doesn't have anything to do with well, you need that. any of that. You, like, you, you, life is full of, like, even even at the even at its worst moments, there's still uh, really funny bits of life. And so it wouldn't, the, the, the story wouldn't ring true if there wasn't humor in it, too. What I'm interested in is, and I, and I, I like, um, like, I'm really interested in, in work like this where, you have very clearly a story in a genre, right? But the author is not really going in that along the conventions of the genre precisely, right. and is bleeding in all these different aspects from you know other types of writing. Yeah. So I find that interesting. The other th- my thing that's just personally um, the thing I'm most interested in in general in literature is unusual narrative voices. <laughs> yeah. so, you know, this book has in spades because it's very it's narrated <laughs> by this kind of figure who's sort of disconnected from yeah. other things like can you describe like the narrative sure. voice a little bit yeah well the, the uh, you know the typical I think classical narrative uh, narrative voice is one where you you realize that um, somebody's just telling you a story you don't know who that is it doesn't matter um, in this case though 
the the narrator, it almost seems like they're there mm-hmm. or were there the entire time. So they've 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 experienced it firsthand, and they're they're willing to even break the third wall. Which one reviewer said? Uh, I'm trying to remember what she said. She said something like, "Yeah, the uh, the writer does a really strange thing here and often breaks the third wall." And um, um, she went on to say that the first time it happens, it, 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 I, from memory, it was just like kind of like a really strange thing, but then it works. And that's the point is, is that I wanted, the, I wanted the, narr- uh, the narrator to feel like it could have been somebody that you know that you, that you, that you had brushed past in Winnipeg, mm-hmm. that they were just in... Yes, it's an interesting tone because it's a very casual tone in many respects. It's mm-hmm. like, you know, this is a story about the end of hard currency. <laughs> it's like, you know, come yeah. along. I'll, we'll, we'll get to that thing later. You yeah. Know? Sometimes what happens uh, is, you know, pomegranates have these little seeds. Like, it's like it's, it's interesting because you have all these little digressive moments where they'll just, the narrator will just explain something about mm-hmm. the world or what's happening or just, as you say, like offer an opinion. Yeah, like, and he know, forgets I things. brought to you a London fog and, you know, and like there's a moment moment in the book where there's talking like a London fog is like made this way. I was wondering way. if you were going to pick up on that and you did. Well, I didn't realize Parler had <laughs> London fogs. That's so fantastic. I mean, that was the like, whole point, but yeah, yeah, no, I, I, I was, I was, but I, I was, um, but it, like, there's a whole like little moment in the book where like, you know, you, the character has a London fog and it's actually a, a plot point. Yeah. Um, and then like, there's a little narrative discussion of the London fog and like how, what mm-hmm. goes in it and like how it tastes. Yeah. They're really good. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But like, this is like a narrator who's not otherwise like, um, but, but yeah, it's, just, it's, it's a very intrusive, uh, as you say, like kind of breaking the fourth wall, like version of. Yeah. Sorry. I said voice. third wall, didn't I? Yeah, well, what? But I, but that intrusive, like it's you know they're they're just coming at the reader, mm-hmm. um, telling them things directly, you know, talking about what's going to happen later. If you just hang on, be patient. Yeah, good on you. At one point, there's like you know it, it makes uh, some. Uh, there, there's a comment about literacy. It's like good on you for like breaking yeah. the statistic and reading a book. <laughs> yeah, you know, fun. but but that that where did how did you settle onto that voice? Because I find like the, one of the hardest things personally as a writer is finding the right voice for a book, mm-hmm. and then also I'm just interested in unusual narrative voices. Yeah, because you don't see them very often, especially in uh, work that would otherwise. Um, I, I find it especially unusual in genre fiction. Yeah, you're right about that. Uh, I do too because I read a lot of uh, genre fiction and I read a lot of literary fiction, graphic. I, I read mm-hmm. it all. I, I have a taste for all of it, poetry, um, and and I and I glean little bits from all of that too because it's all various different writing styles, um, different motifs, different. Um, I, I mean, just the, the facets are are infinite. So for me, um, I thought. Well, I gotta, I gotta, I have to do, I have to do a voice that I'm comfortable with. So I, I have a feeling that a lot of that has just to do with myself um, and how I operate in the everyday world. Um, and that's that that voice is 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 birthed or spawned from that from that aspect of whatever it is that I read and whatever it is that I that I do based on the person that I am. And then and then I have fun with it. And sometimes uh, I, I went I went too far, and then uh, my 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 editor would bring it back a little bit and say you did go a little too far. You you just went right over the edge on this. I don't know if anybody's going to get that. Um, and so there is there is a bit of a um, 
a taming of of the writer that you have to do where you just kind of you know reel them in a bit um and i think that that has to uh, you know you have to be able to as a writer to be able to say okay i trust my editor um and that they're going to make the this hopefully a good book into a great book and uh you follow their you follow their their direction and sometimes it's like you know the editor the editor will come back to you and say that's not enough like i i think you could do so much more here with this you know elaborate on it and then you do and you're and that's where the that that narrative voice comes out even more um but the the narrator in the book is unreliable mm-hmm. um you know and i think i think that that's i think that that's obvious because it's it's really from that we'll call it a narrator's perspective right like there's there's no there's no argument here there's nobody to come and say to the narrator, mm-hmm. um, yeah, that's not true. And he even says a number of times in the book, that's really true. And that's the marketing aspect of it that I wanted to hit home, which was, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of uh, you know, attack against um, advertising and marketing and the, the onslaught and barrage of that in our daily world. And I wanted the, I wanted the, the, the narrator to even uh, play with that. And, and mess around with that where he says, uh, you know, um, Jonathan Ball is an ex-convict. That's really true. <laughs> right? We know it's not. Like, uh, I think of, like, you got a lot of historical moments in Winnipeg. Um, and every time you say it, it's really true, I, was, I feel like, like, there's a, <laughs> the line, there's one moment where um, describing a, when the Winnipeg, you know, retired as street electric streetcars and yeah. paraded one through the streets with a sad face painted on it. Yeah. And so, so I like kind of like state like, Oh, that's really true. Every time that comes up, I keep thinking, is it really true? Like, it seems like it could, but like it's, it's, it's bizarre and seems clearly untrue. But then because it's Winnipeg, it, it almost feels like it could be true. Well, I I, but like if day, do you know what if day? Yes. So if day, p- tell people what if day was, if they, and this is the kind of thing that we used to do in Winnipeg. It's right. like Winnipeg as a city. Well, okay, so just go... Guy Madden has a... Uh, in my Winnipeg, if, you, if you're listening, go watch my Winnipeg. <laughs> like, uh, where, you know, similarly, you, you got this weird blend of, like, truth and lie about Winnipeg. Right. But, it, but he gets into detail about if it was a real, an actual event that took place in Winnipeg. Yes. And, and oddly enough, an, uh, another reviewer uh, likened the book to... Uh, my Winnipeg, uh, yeah, yeah, like a surreal, a surreal My Winnipeg, um, which I thought was um, it was completely unintentional on my behalf. But I never even thought of that until some until this person said mm-hmm. it, and I thought, you know, just thinking back to the film and the horse heads, yeah, it, you know, Frozen, uh, you know, there must have been, there must like there, nothing is. Uninfluenced, like I'm, mm-hmm. I'm influenced by everything. So there must have been something that that maybe uh, triggered, uh, you know, you know, in the deep recesses and the synapses fire, and mm-hmm. something happens, right? Where I say to myself, "Well, I'm going to release some bison in Winnipeg and yeah. and see how that goes." Yeah, bison. There's a stampede of bison that just keeps appearing, and yeah, just roaming, and nobody can seem around. to catch them, and yeah. and nobody uh, can find or catch a right. herd and it's of like, bison. Yeah, and, <laughs> but, and, you is, know, but there is a real herd of bison, like that's corralled over at um, yeah, Fort White, numbers. which you uh, you know, which you know. 
so there's like this weird like seed of truth in a lot of the stuff. That's that's the best part of good fiction is is mm-hmm. is, is having uh, an element of truth, which like those trolleys. Um, mm-hmm. That's a story that was handed down to me from somebody who was you know from here, who was old enough, I guess, to have had that handed down to them, and it and apparently it happened. Mm. But I wasn't there, so I can't say. But that's the beauty of of half truth is. Um, stories become purple monkey dishwashers, sort of yeah. at the end of uh, at the end of time, right? Which it's it's handed down to one person and it changes, and then it's morphed and it evolves and handed down to another person, it changes, and then it becomes a legend. Were there, Winnipeg is filled with legends. <laughs> well, maybe as a, before we kind of move into talking about the press, like sure, kind of end off talking the book. Do you want to? Can you tell me a little bit more about like the kind of you know? I feel like in many ways this is a book that is interested in like that kind of legend making or like myth making, like it myth- is. mythologizing Winnipeg. Yes. There's, there's like an interesting like mythologizing Winnipeg project that a lot of Winnipeg based artists have taken up. Yeah. And I'm curious to know like to you, like what is the, um, what is so important about, you know, like taking a place where you live and uh, mythologizing it in a manner? Well, is it something something you've been, you were you've been thinking through writing a book like this, or is it just something that just sort I think of it doing just happens while you're trying to have fun. It, well, for me anyway, it just happened. Um, I just found that Winnipeg was this very curious, um, surreal, interesting place that it was it was it was worth it to commission a, 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 the cartographer over at uh, U of W, a Weldon Hebert, to do this map. Mm-hmm. And I told him, I'm like, you know, it's a bit of a project, Weldon, because uh, it, it's about 90% true, and then there's about 10% fiction to the map, which he was fine with, and he produced this great map, um, where it just, all of that is just part of the layers of the book, which is, is that, you know, there is, there is definitely some real truth to it. Um, there is definitely some real possible truth to it, but there's a lot of lie and uh, there's a lot of, you know, falsehood, um, misleading information, but that's the world we live in, right? Like what, what, when you go on Twitter or you go on Facebook or you go on the internet or you, or the news tells you a story, there's, there's, there's somebody always has an invested interest in it, right? Like they're, they're always, they're always after something. You know, it's like the politician. It's like they're supposed to be a public servant, but they're in it to make a wage, and uh, they've got their own best interests at heart. And we've seen that, you know, historically. So what is what does the everyday average citizen have to do to survive? And I like the aspect of of one person still being able to make a difference, even if that's not true. And a, a real part of me believes that that's not true, that one person cannot make a difference in the world. But that's the beauty of writing a book like that, is that you offer up that seed of hope. Yeah,